Welcome to the Revenue Engine Podcast. I'm your host, Rosalind Santa Elena, and I am thrilled to bring you the most inspirational stories from revenue generators, innovators, and disruptors, revenue leaders in sales, in marketing, and of course, in operations. Together, we will unpack everything that optimizes and powers the revenue engine. Are you ready? Let's get to it. When you are a builder of revenue engines at startups, a lifetime learner, and an avid coach, it makes perfect sense that you would start your own business focused on founder coaching programs and sales coaching to help organizations ramp up and scale up their revenue. I had the opportunity to sit down with Scott Sambucci, the CEO and founder of SalesQualia. In addition to being a CEO and founder, Scott is an accomplished author, professor, speaker, and revenue leader. Not to mention, he's also a three-time Ironman, ultra runner, and a marathon swimmer. So please take a listen to this amazing journey of a career coach and one of the nicest people you will ever meet. Excited to be here today with Scott Sambucci, the CEO and founder of SalesQualia. SalesQualia focuses on helping enterprise technology startups ramp up and scale up their sales teams and increase revenue through startup founder coaching programs and sales coaching. In addition to being a CEO, Scott is an accomplished author, professor, speaker, and revenue leader, not to mention a three-time Ironman, ultra runner, and a marathon swimmer. So welcome, Scott, and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for so having me. excited to unpack your story and learn from Same you. Here. Thanks. With the ultra running and the swimming, I always just tell people I like to cover long distances by means of self-propulsion. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. <laughs> well, so, so thank you for joining me. Let's talk a little bit about your career journey, Sure. right? You have such an amazing background, as I was sharing with you kind of before we started recording. You know, I've seen that you've been in leaders in product, in sales, in marketing, in customer success, and even in operations. So not to mention also a lot being a lifelong teacher as well. Mm -hmm. So let's start yeah. maybe with your non-teaching side first. Can you share okay. a little bit about your career journey on the business side? Yeah, I think probably easiest place to start is coming out of college. I was a history major, which meant either you had to teach, which I didn't want to get a teaching degree. You could work in a museum uh, or you could go to graduate school. And I didn't get into two of the graduate schools that I applied to. So <laughs> Then I was stuck with like, okay, now what? And a friend of mine had graduated about two years before me and said, look, I've been doing sales. It's really great. I think you do well at it. And so I think you should apply for some sales jobs. And that's really, it was really out of the need to pay rent and get a job out of college that led me into sales. And so my first kind of real job out of college, I ended up working with Prentice Hall, which is now Pearson Education, selling college textbooks to professors. And so I'd go to university campuses, talk about their classes they'd be teaching and showing them why they should be using our textbooks in their classes. And this is kind of late nineties, early, like yeah, late nineties, mid to late nineties. I graduated college in 96. And this is really, if you think about the timing, that first web 1.0, the first internet mm -hmm. wave and the first internet boom. And so with the textbooks, the publishers started publishing a lot of technology accompaniments to go with the books, companion websites, CD-ROMs that would go in the books. <laughs> And that just, yeah, CD-ROMs, exactly. <laughs> I'm laughing and, 
but I shouldn't be because I had no, those too. I, like, I had those too. We all had those. And so that really got me exposed to technology in the way we think of it today, you know, websites and, and, and other uh, online materials. And from being a successful salesperson, I did some product work at Prentice Hall. And then in early, late 2001, early 2002, I was recruited to move to Silicon Valley to work with a startup called Applia, which was founded by a, an economist named Paul Romer, who more recently just won the Nobel Prize in economics. Oh, wow. Back then, about 20 years ago, he had started this ed tech startup. And the, the tech world at that time, they didn't really understand content. And so they were recruiting a lot of people from the publishing from the East Coast. And I was one of those people who got recruited out. And that's what led me to Silicon Valley in the first place. It's amazing. I think, you know, along your journey, you know, I've seen that you've also been an avid coach and teacher, right? Mm -hmm. As a university lecturer, professor, and a whole lot more. So can you talk a little bit about that side of your experience? Yeah, that, that kind of started when I was as a sales rep with Prentice Hall. I, I just felt like I had this enormous opportunity. I had a really great manager who was very supportive and I really want to take advantage of this opportunity that was in front of me. And so I just started reading books. I was reading sales books. I'd go to the bookstore and pretty much read a sales book or a personal development book every single week. Oh, wow. And that got me thinking about like, wow, I could, I could start to, I, I would love to train people and teach people the stuff that I'm learning. And even within Pearson, within Prentice Hall, I started doing some sales training for our district and for our regional team. And so it just kind of like developed its DNA there. So we fast forward into when I was at Silicon Valley at Applia, I'd gotten so interested in the area of economics by working with Paul Romer that I actually left the company to go get a graduate degree in economics. So I was like, Hey, Paul, oh. thanks for all the inspiration. I'm going to see you later now. And, <laughs> and so uh, I went back to school full time and got my master's in international and development economics from the University of San Francisco. The re and that led into some teaching. So as part of the field work that I had to do, I was in Kazakhstan, I moved to Kazakhstan for the summer, thought I was going to be there about six weeks doing field work. And while being hosted at one of the universities, they said, listen, we saw that you have an MBA from finance. Along the way, I'd earned an MBA in finance from Duke University. Just, just picked one up. Picked one up. And <laughs> so we have a professor who's going out on maternity leave. You know, can you teach finance? Oh, wow. And that's how they asked me. They're like, can you teach finance? And I said, well, I don't know, but I'm happy to give it a try. <laughs> and so six weeks turned into six months. And that was my first teaching position in a university in Almaty, Kazakhstan, called Kimep University. And that's kind of like kickstarted my true education kind of side of my of my life. And so throughout the course of the work that I've done, I've always picked up kind of teaching positions and either as an adjunct or a part-time professor because I've just enjoyed the teaching. And it's also been useful for me from purely from an economic standpoint as I was starting Sales Qualia, having some teaching jobs helped to fill the gap as I was transitioning out of my full-time work with companies and into running Sales Qualia as a company. So that's kind of the the teaching side of the journey. It's amazing. Yeah. I think, you know, I love the way you just kind of threw in, oh, and I had, I picked up an MBA along <laughs> the way. So it's like two. So given sort of your expertise in both business and in teaching, right? It seems like sales mm -hmm. qualia was sort of the perfect blend of these two areas of expertise. So I'm super interested in hearing more about this. Like, do you mind sharing the story of how, you know, sales qualia was born? Sure, sure. So let me let me think about the the context here, like time wise. So I, I was, like I said, I was at this company called Applia, and then left to get a, a, a master's degree in economics. And so I thought, well, I'm kind of done with sales. You know, I I was at this point like my late 20s, going into my early 30s, and I thought like I've done the sales thing, I've done the startup thing. Now I want to do finance. So I thought, you know, I'm going to go work at a, on a trading desk, or I'm going to I interview with some venture capital companies. Mm -hmm. I thought like this could be my thing next, and I really just couldn't get any traction. 
in interviewing for those positions, mostly because at that point I was actually too old to be an analyst on the desk. You're <laughs> like, oh, you're like 29 years old. Like there ain't no way you're going to work 80 hours a week like the 22 year olds. And the venture capital, you know, I got a couple offers, but it wasn't, you know, really as interesting as I thought it was going to be. Yeah. So now I'm sitting there going like, great, I just spent two years getting this economics degree and what am I going to do? Well, I just went back into the startup world and started working with Altos Research. So at the time, uh, it was just a company founder who was a guy named Mike Simonson. He was a full-time company founder with two co-founders that were still part-time at their day jobs at Motorola. Oh. And I was the first kind of non-founder and I started running the sales operations there as they were getting off the ground. So as we started growing that company, we got you know past the million dollar mark and we we're getting towards the $2 million mark. We realized like, well, we got to build like a team. I can't run sales. I can't do sales on my own. Mm -hmm. So we started adding customer success people, support people, uh, a couple of uh, salespeople. And I realized, well, if I'm going to manage these people. I got to teach them something. <laughs> what am I going to teach them? How am I going to teach them how to do the things I do? And so I just started keeping the Evernote file of what I would teach, what I need to teach this team that I've been growing over the course of about six months. And the, the notes led to a book that I decided to self-publish called Startup Selling, How mm -hmm. to Sell If You Really, Really Have To and You Don't Know How. <laughs> um, I decided to self-publish that book. And then that book led to some workshops. So people are like, oh, we heard you have this book. And why don't you come teach a sales workshop? So I did, as an example, I did a sales workshop at the 2013 Lean Startup Conference. Mm -hmm. I think it might have been one of the first Lean Startup Conferences that were out there. And um, after that, it led one workshop led to another and after every workshop, I was like, this is pretty fun. You know, I get to go out and teach and you make a little money. Yep. And after each workshop, I always had one or two people afterwards would come up to me and say like, that was a really great workshop. I learned so much. I was just wondering, do you do any coaching where you can kind of help me implement some of these ideas? And mm -hmm. I was like, well, yes, of course I do <laughs> some coaching. Yes, yes, I do. And uh, so I kind of like started building up a little bit of a coaching practice on the side, just doing some one-on-one -on -one stuff with a couple of startups. And so it was always this kind of side gig for me mm -hmm. while I was working at Altos and then at, at Blend, which is a lending software startup. And I eventually got to the point where I felt like, you know, I've at the point where I decided to leave Blend when I was, I was close to 40 years old at the time, just after 40. And I thought, you know, I've been commuting from Davis to San Francisco, which is two and a half hours each way. And my mm -hmm. wife is working on her PhD wow. now at UC Davis. And we had a two-year-old son at home. And those yeah. are the, the weeks I was technically <laughs> home because I only went to the home office. That didn't include the uh -huh. weeks where I was traveling to Dallas or DC or Chicago and doing meetings and implementations. And it just got to the point where I'm like, all right, I got to make some life decisions here. And I built up enough kind of customers and clients on the side and I could fill in the gap with some team for about six months. And I thought, well, this would, if I was ever going to make the transition out of working at a startup or running my own company mm -hmm. as making that my life's work, then this would be the time to do it. And so... That's what I did. And that was the, the genesis of sales quality and brought us to where we are today. Wow. And so fast forward like nine years, has it been about nine years? Nine years since I kind of started off as like a side gig, nine or 10 years. And it's been five, five and a half years since it's been a full-time effort. Got it. Got it. So when you, when you set up sales quality, like what was your original um, vision for the company and you know, how, how has that changed? If at all? Yeah. Great question. I was thinking about this a little bit and Initially, I thought, well, these workshops are really great because I get to teach, which I love to do. Mm -hmm. uh, the audience is obviously, they're there because they paid to be at the workshop. So they're <laughs> clearly engaged, like they want yeah. to learn, Yeah, uh, which is different than a university classroom <laughs> where you're teaching like, you know, finance 101 or principles of economics. 
that when most of the students are there because it's in the course, rec, you know, it's in their program requirements. <laughs> and so I was like, this is fun. Like I was getting a lot of energy from the, from being in the room and, and it felt like people were really resonating with what I was teaching. So I thought, well, I'll just do these workshops. And like, this would be great. I'll just go around and do workshops every day. And then I started doing the, the numbers on that. I'm like, well, you make a little bit of money on workshops, but number one, they are tiring because if you want to bring the energy and yeah. do that, like lining up a workshop every day is really tiring. And you don't make that much money, even if you make a couple thousand bucks on a workshop, it doesn't really scale. Mm -hmm. And so that's then the, the coaching on the side, I was doing the one-on-one -on -one stuff and I thought, well, that's good. But the problem with one-on-one -on -one coaching and doing exclusively one-on-one -on -one is that I found myself repeating myself every day. So I talked to one team on a Tuesday about lead gen. And then I, the next day I talked to another startup and they're like, Hey, so I got these questions about lead gen. And I'm thinking, man, I really <laughs> wish you could have been in that conversation yesterday. Cause when I talked to Arthur and Will <laughs> about lead gen, man, like we knocked it out. We came up with this plan. So now I was like something here, there's gotta be something, some way to improve the learning experience. Mm -hmm. And so at first I thought it was to be workshops and some one-on-one. -on -one. And as it's evolved, what I realized is, as much as I need to teach the content and, and teach the frameworks, the coaching is important for the implementation. But the, the real key that, that we've learned is that working in small groups with our clients, I mean, of course we do some one-on-ones when we need to, if we gotta like pull apart a deal or talk about a hiring situation. But for a, a good chunk of the, the weekly calls that we run, we do them in an office hours environment, just like you would in a university classroom. Mm -hmm. You say, hey, if, you got, if you're getting stuck on the homework problems, come to office hours. I'll be there from 12 to 2. Pop in, ask your question. And then you might be some other students that are going to ask questions that you didn't think you even knew to right, ask. Right. And so when we run them in this group program, in this group environment, what I found is I actually only spend about, the team and I only spend about half of the time actually doing the teaching. Because now Arthur is there with Bill and they're like, oh, I had that situation last week. Mm -hmm. When I was in that situation, this was what I did. Or, hey, what, have you tried using this system? Or, hey, when we run our demos, we do it this way. And so as much as people in our, in our program are learning from us, they're also learning from each other. And that's where I think there's a lot more magic that happens. And so that evolution is something I didn't anticipate when I started off doing, thinking of it as like teaching and coaching. Mm -hmm. I thought it all had to run through me. And I realized that the clients can teach each other just as much as, as we can teach them. Yeah, yeah. That's, that is so true. Sharing best practices, sharing with each other is such a big part of, I think, things that you're doing, things I'm doing, things that I think a lot of folks were doing, especially last year, which is sort of the community aspect. When I think about sales coaching, right, you touched on coaching, but also a lot more than just coaching, but it's, it seems like it's so broad, right? And it's just, but it's so critical right? For teams, right? To be able to yeah. actually grow and scale, but also to start to, you know, optimize, be more efficient, be more effective. So what are some of the key areas that you focus on when you work with some of these early startups? Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting because it, it, the starting point oftentimes can be in different places yeah. based on where teams are. You know, if a team is you know, under a million dollars in revenue, really what the focus really needs to be there is around building a repeatable process. Mm -hmm. Like how are you generating leads in a predictable way? Are you qualifying those leads? How are you qualifying those through a rubric that guarantees, you know, to some degree that you're not going to be wasting time with a deal that's going to suck the life out of you for the next six months? Um, <laughs> how are you running your product demos in a way that's not just like 75 points and clicks and let me tell you why the buttons are blue and let me tell you about this great integration and that it's more focused on the client's problems as opposed to your product. So a lot of what we teach in the, mm -hmm. for those kinds of companies is just getting repeatable systems from top of the funnel all the way through to customer success and, and upselling and cross-selling. Because if you get, once you get those repeatable processes working, 
just like a factory, then once you kind of break through that million dollar mark, and that's typically where a, a startup will, will land a series A, then it's about scaling the team. Mm -hmm. And so in that first phase, it's like get process, repeatability. And then once you have repeatability, then you can hire the team that you need to run those processes. Mm -hmm. And just like you would in almost like an engineering platform, we say, here's our core platform. We're going to hire the best engineers I can that are going to build on top of that platform, the applications and the integrations and everything else we need to be successful. It works the same way from a sales function is once you have that core mm -hmm. process and that core system in place, then you hire people to work those systems and then improve them and grow them and scale them. So you can make the jump from one to three or three to 10 or 10 to 30 million and so on. That makes a lot of sense. So those are kind of the two areas. Got it. Yeah. And you, so you have an opportunity to work with, like you said, many different kinds of startups at different stages and then with many different founders. Yeah. Right, what are some of, I guess, what are some of, what are some of the things that you are seeing founders doing wrong when it comes to establishing the revenue team, right? And some of these processes that you're talking about. Yeah. How much time do you have? <laughs> they'll, be, they'll have to be uh, a part no. two. <laughs> well, I think the uh, there's a couple of things a couple of things that come up, and the first is it's it's going to sound odd to say this, but one of the biggest mistakes I see is that founders hire salespeople too soon, mm. and they also wait too long to hire. So let me explain those. So oftentimes, what we'll see is a founder that you know, does the founder led selling, you know, they get you know, what we call the first 10 customers, yeah. you know, it's grit and hustle and network and hard work and whatever it takes to get those first 10. And that's where hustle stops this, you know, you can't really scale hustle and you have to move into more of a systems approach. And the challenge that we see, or the mistake I see too often is that a founder will immediately jump to hiring a more senior account executive, somebody with a big Rolodex, or they'll hire like, oh, we got 10 customers. Now I need a VP of sales. Mm -hmm. And you really don't need that level of person. What you really need is somebody that can help you implement some of those basic systems to get some repeatability around lead gen and your pipeline and your customer success. So when I say the, the one mistake they make is they hire too soon, it means they usually hire a sales leader or a VP of sales or somebody that's more senior thinking, well, I got the first 10. Now I'm just going to like hand this mm -hmm. over to somebody else and let them figure out how to like make this repeatable and scalable. I'm going to go back to being founder. And that's really a mistake because what you need to do is build that process yourself and then hire the team that's going to run that process. So that's what I mean by oftentimes they hire too soon. Now, the opposite of that is sometimes they wait too long to hire, meaning that they are continuing to take on some of the, I, I don't want to say lower level tasks, but more of the repeatable tasks as it relates mm -hmm. to sales. So it could be things like, you know, sending out outbound emails or doing lead research or even customer support. You know, we, you can start to see some repeatability around things like customer support. Well, get find somebody who can handle those those requests, at least eighty percent of them. When it's lead gen, once you've got your messaging at least partway down, find somebody who can run that okay. outbound sequence and help you focus on the higher value parts of the sale, which is maybe running the demos or answering objections and questions you're getting from top executives or talking through the product roadmap so the technical team on the other side feels comfortable with the integrations that are coming. Because those are the only the you're the only person in the world typically that can answer those mm -hmm. questions, so they they tend to take on too much for too long, and so I always look for is like as soon as you see any any instant of repeatability, like oh this feels kind of mundane, this kind of sucks. It's Friday <laughs> night and I'm like doing this thing on LinkedIn. It's like good, great, that's a good sign. You know, start doing Loom videos of yourself doing <laughs> that thing, and then go find a part time person to help you with 
sales development or customer success or some other part of your business. Got it. Got it. That's really good advice. So maybe we could dig a little bit deeper into that and talk about how does your program specifically really help set them on that right path for success? Mm. I think you touched on it a little bit, but yeah. what are some of the things, I guess, in your program that you say, hey, this this will really set you up for success, put you on the right path? Well, I think, and this, this is actually one of the things that gets challenging for us because if people think about what we do and they think sales, like you're going to help me get sales. It's like, yeah, we're going to help you get sales. And so like, great, I've got this pipeline. And, and like, I just need to get like three of these deals across the line by the end of Q2. And then everything's going to be great. And the challenge there is like, well, first of all, like, I don't even know if your pipeline is qualified. Yeah. If you think you've got these deals in the pipeline. Like how many, like, okay, great. You have what you think is a big, healthy pipeline. I'm like big and healthy are not always the same thing. Like sometimes smaller is better. You need to disqualify deals out or you're hoping too much. Yeah. And, and so one of the things we ask all of our, require all of our clients to do, even before we invite them into the program is we have them run an assessment around what we call the nine sales accelerators. So this goes back to the systems approach around prospecting and pipeline and your paying customers. When you think about everything from filling the funnel all the way through to customer success, we think, we think of them as like nine basic machines that work within your sales process. And so we have our, our founders do this diagnostic on their own so they can kind of score themselves. Where are they strong? Where are they weak? Where do they have gaps? And that helps us help them see exactly where we need to focus the mm -hmm. work as opposed to just like running to us and expecting we're going to like, you know, yeah. magic <laughs> potion and sales are going to like magically pop up. So where, where we usually start is with that assessment so that we can focus in on okay, based on what you're telling me, it sounds like you're not getting enough leads into the top mm -hmm. of the funnel. Let's spend the next three months focusing on that top of funnel, get an outbound sequence that works so that you have a consistent flow of leads instead of this trickle of inbound that's happening mm -hmm. uh, here and there. So that's that's always where we start is, is really kind of focusing in on what are the core systems you need to build? Where do you have those gaps? Let's get those working because then later on, if you want to grow the team, it's going to be easy to show them what their jobs and responsibilities and roles. Are going to be. Got it. Got it. I love that nine step approach. I have to take a look at, I have to dive into that deeper and take a look at it more. Um, so as you know, like me, I are like you, I'm a big believer, obviously in sharing experience, expertise, and knowledge with others, you know, whether that's through a mm -hmm. formal partnership or just, you know, friendly one-on-one -on -one conversations, there's just such an appetite for learning from others, right. And sharing best practices. So what are you seeing in terms of trends in the market? Like, do you see more businesses moving in this direction of bringing in external expertise to really help supplement learning and training? Because it seems to make a lot of sense, right? Versus recreating the wheel each and every time. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, the sales training industry has been around for decades now, right? I mean, I remember I used to listen to Zig Ziglar tapes on audio cassette <laughs> when I was in the car. So, and, and he wasn't the first sales trainer out there. What I am seeing though, is certainly a movement towards mm -hmm. coaching which is different. Training is sort of like, okay, we're going to show up. We're going to learn this class, spend a couple of days and get some free bagels and then forget 90% yeah. of the stuff <laughs> that I learned in three days. Whereas coaching is more of this engagement over time. Yeah. And if you think about, you know, whatever that analogy you might think of, whether it's sports or, you know, like Beyonce has a voice mm -hmm. coach, right? Like she's one of the, the best in the world, but she doesn't say, well, now I'm, now I've got my voice the way I want it. I'm right. good. Like she continues to work with that coach because she knows things are going to change and things are going to evolve in the same with, you know, with a professional athlete, they have coaches that work with them over time. And there's a really great book that came out about two years ago called trillion dollar coach. I don't know if you've heard of this book. It's about a guy named Bill Campbell, 
who was, uh, among other things, he was uh, formerly the CEO of Intuit, mm -hmm. and he became a coach, a business coach for the team at Google, Eric Schmidt, uh, Sergey, and, and the rest of the mm -hmm. team there. He coached Steve Jobs. Oh, wow. He coached, yeah. I mean, he's basically coached every, he's coached uh, Marissa mm -hmm. Meyer. Like, he's basically coached every significant um, tech CEO that you can think of, which is why the book is called Trillion Dollar oh. Coach, because his impact has been that big. And so I think the more that, you know, what you don't have to be Eric Schmidt to get a coach. I mean, in fact, if you're not Eric Schmidt, that's even why you, even more reason right. why you should, right? But that tells me like if, and he was even resistant to it at first. He's like, no, I got this. You know, I've been a CEO before. I don't really need this help. Who's this guy, Bill Campbell? And it took him a little while to get comfortable with it until he realized the value of having somebody that's working with him and his team every day to help them see the blind spots, to help them ask questions they didn't think to ask, to really, you know, mm -hmm. hold them to a higher level higher standard that they might hold than they might hold themselves to. And I think as, as that sort of sense of, Hey, just because you're an entrepreneur doesn't mean you have to do everything on your mm -hmm. own. Uh, I think it's like you said, going out and finding people to help you out uh, along the way, because like, let's face it, you, you have this runway literally and figuratively for your company. And so you can't really afford in a lot of cases to be this do it yourself mindset because the, the length of time it takes to DIY it might be too long. Or it might be too late. And sometimes we get those calls from founders like, Hey, I'm three months away. I'm going to be out of cash. I've got to convert, you know, these deals in the pipeline that raise the next bridge round. And, and I'm just like, look, man, I, we're good, but we can't work miracles here. Like you should have called me nine months ago. Yeah. And so, so I do think that there's, there's a, a larger movement towards coaching versus training. And I think that's a good thing. I think that shows a level of emotional maturity that's been permeating throughout Silicon Valley. Yeah, I love that. Now, there's a definitely a distinction between training and coaching. And that's a good analogy with some of the folks who are are at the top of their game. They continue to want to improve, right? To stay there. That's why they're at the top of their game, yeah. right? You know, Bill Clinton has had a coach. Beyonce, I mentioned, yeah. has had a coach. I mean, when I hear people like Eric Schmidt and Steve Jobs have had a coach, I mean, it makes sense to me. I mean, I, I do this ultra running that you mentioned. And I, I mean, this is like for recreation. It's a cost center for me. It's not even like... <laughs> I get anything out of it other than, you know, late nights on the trail and, and, you know, things like that. But I pay a coach and this guy that I work with is one of the best ultra runners that has ever lived. Like he's like, if you look at his resume over the last 15, 20 years, it's like first place, first place, first place, world record this. And I pay for that because I could go and train on my own and I could probably figure a lot of stuff out on my own, but I only can run two races, two big races mm -hmm. a year. So if I'm going to spend that much time and effort to go run a hundred mile race or a 200 oh. mile race, like I want to do my very best. I've got a race coming up in a month's time from today. It's June, uh, June 26th is the Western state 100, which is the most prestigious ultra race, wow. ultra running race in the world. It's a hundred mile race. And there were almost 7,000 people that were trying to get into this race for 369. Oh, wow. And I happened to get a spot because of a lottery system and way that they award the tickets and the spots into this race. So this is literally a once in a lifetime opportunity for me. And, and I thought to myself, like, if I have one chance to run this race and I want to break 24 hours in running this, this hundred miles in under 24 hours, like I'm going to take full advantage of this opportunity because I, I can't afford not to take advantage right. of that. And so that's why I invested in this coach and he's got me doing all <laughs> kinds of crazy stuff. I mean, before we got on the call, I was on the floor doing crunches <laughs> between calls and doing all kinds of weird 
calisthenics when I was took my dog to the dog park this morning and like the dog's running around and I'm sitting there doing planks <laughs> on the grass while the other dog owners are talking to each other. But that's the thing that he makes yeah. me do. That's the that's why I pay for him to do because he's going to ask me, "Did you do your strength yeah. work?" It's not just how many miles did you run. And so I think it's just for me, it's it's worked for me in my life and having coaches, not just in business but in personal. And so I'm obviously a fan of that and I'm biased towards it, but it's worked for me. And I just believe that everyone should have yeah. a coach. I love that. I love that. So let's talk about, you know, the topic of learning, right? You released a new book called Stop Hustling, Start Scaling, not too long ago. Do you mind sharing more mm -hmm. about the book and kind of what others might be able to expect yeah. to learn and take away from it? Yeah, the uh, pull a copy off the shelf. So the subtitle it might even be more important than the, the main title, which is ramp up your B2B startups, repeatable revenue with the Q framework. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot of what we talked about a little bit earlier, Rosalind, which is, you know, that as a founder, you know, most people go out there and they hustle and they hard work and they get their early customers, they get the revenue going and flowing, but they don't have systems in place to get more repeatable and more scalable sales. And so this is a place where oftentimes as founders will kind of hit that ceiling. They can't figure out like, I got these 10 customers. Why can't I get, you know, the next yeah. 30? And a lot of times it's because they don't have the core systems that they need to have. They don't have these nine sales accelerators in place. And so I wrote the book and it's designed as more of a handbook uh, more than anything, where every chapter walks through a specific question that is designed to help a founder interrogate their own sales process. Mm -hmm. So there's seven questions in the Q framework, the Q stands for questions. And so the book is designed that if, if a founder walks through these seven questions, and does the activities at the end of the book that will help them build that sort of version 1.0 of a repeatable sales process. And so it was important to me that the book wasn't just yet another sales book yeah. on the shelf that people read like, oh, I got some good ideas. Uh, maybe I'll implement a couple of them. I wanted it to be a handbook. I wanted it to be a go-to book. Um, so every, every chapter even has worksheets and we have a companion website that goes oh, with the wow. book where people can download the worksheets and watch a video and see how to use the worksheets. So I want it to be functional and tactical, not just like a bunch of theory. Wow. That's great. I'm going to have to read that too. I'm going to go pick that one up. Yeah. <laughs> well, good. So, you know, as I think about the Revenue Engine podcast, right, I think about, you know, I always hope that others will be able to learn how to accelerate revenue growth, right, and really power the revenue engine. So from your perspective, what are the top three things, maybe it's two or three things, that all CEOs and founders should be thinking about today? like to really establish the right mm. framework for growing their business. I think you touched on some of it already throughout our conversation, Yeah. but are there two or three things that you say, Hey, you've yeah. got to be thinking about this now. Yeah, there's, I think there's three, there is three to come to mind. So the first one is focusing on the problem and focusing on your market. So, mm. you know, one of the, I've heard this quote before, I think it was attributed to David Packard first, which is, you know, startups or companies rarely die of, of starvation, they dive into gestion. And so uh, too often, I think companies will go out, founders will go out and yeah, the TAM is huge and we want to sell to healthcare systems and we want to sell to telecom. We want to sell to banks and because they all have the same problem and it's really not the same version of the problem. And so the, the first thing that I would always advise people is get as narrow as possible, narrow in your niche. Like when, when I was at Blend, when we were first starting up selling to banks and mortgage lenders, there are 8,000 mortgage lenders in the US. We only sold to the top 100 for the first three years. So like the version of the lending problem that Wells Fargo mm -hmm. has and Prime Lending has and First Republic has is way different than Golden One Credit Union down the street. So let's focus on that, solve that problem. So 
focus on the problem, focus on a market as narrow as possible. The second thing is lead gen, mm -hmm. like make lead generation an everyday activity. I can't tell you how often when we dig into what's happening within some of our clients and some of the startups, we ask them like, what are you doing for lead gen? Well, we get some inbound stuff or we do a little bit on LinkedIn or we run a webinar here and there, but it's not an everyday activity. And so I think like making that, if you don't have leads, like that is literally the lifeblood of your business. You've got to have a lead generation engine and you got to make lead generation an everyday activity. Even if it's like, I'm going to sit down on LinkedIn and do my mm -hmm. 20. I'm going to send out 20 connection requests or I'm going to send out 20 messages to people like do your 20 every day on a consistent basis because that will lead to the results you need. So making lead generation an everyday activity. And the third thing, and this is really where I think a lot of founders get maybe a little bit intimidated because they're selling to bigger companies, is they fail to control the sale. Mm -hmm. And it, control in English, you know, it's like controlling is a bad mm -hmm. thing. But in selling to the enterprise, we have to remember as a startup, most companies that are, are valuing our solution, they've never bought something like we have produced. They've never bought a product like ours. It's not a copy machine. It's not office furniture. It's not a CRM that they've already bought once or twice in the past. There's no, they have no way of evaluating it. They have no idea of like who in the company should actually be involved with this decision. Mm -hmm. And that's why a lot of deals go dark. You do these great demos and people are all excited. You get lots of applause and everything goes dark. It's because the customers are actually lost. They don't know what to do next. And I think it's really important for founders to get clear on and leading the sale and taking control of the sale and say, listen, I'm going to show you the demo. And after the demo, here are the next three steps that we want to think about taking. Because based on our experience of selling to people just like you, we're going to have to get the risk team involved. We're going to have to get the IT person involved. Who can we talk to in procurement that can give us your checklist to make sure we meet all your guidelines? And like taking control of the sale is always important, but it's even more important as you're selling a new product at a new market because your customers just don't know how to buy your thing. Mm, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I didn't think about that. Actually, that does make a lot of sense because it's a startup, new product, new market, probably something completely yeah. brand new to the person yeah. listening. We're replacing manual process in a lot of cases or spreadsheets or SharePoint or you know some you know antiquated system that may have been built in-house and pulled together. And they just don't have a way of evaluating our software. They don't have a way of evaluating the return on investment or how to think about implementation or what even questions to ask. I remember when I was, we were selling to First Republic Bank when I was at Blend, we met with their, I think it was their risk officer at the time. We brought our risk officer with us, a guy named John. And we sat down in this meeting and that they had this long conversation about risk and security and compliance. And I was just kind of like <laughs> nodding along because I didn't really know what was happening, but I pretended I did. It was like a good salesperson. <laughs> And we left, the, we left the building, we got out to the street and I turned to John and I was like, John, I don't think they've bought too many cloud-based solutions yeah. in the past. This is 2013, 2014, so cloud is still new, still new to a lot of people. And he said, they've never bought cloud-based solutions before. And I said, how do you know? And he said, because if that person had bought a cloud, if they had bought a cloud-based solution before, that person would not have been asking me the questions mm -hmm. that they were asking. And so it's, it's just like a real eye-opener to me because here we are on the cutting edge of we're building this cloud-based solution that's going to be wonderful. And meanwhile, the people inside the organization that are responsible for evaluating the product, evaluating the solution, like they don't even know what to evaluate or what the checklist is supposed to look like. So we have to remember that as we're going out and selling in order to make sure that we control the yep. sales. I love that. I love that. That's really good advice. Okay. So looking back right at your career, what are the things or is there anything that you wish you knew earlier or maybe you would do differently if you could do it all over again? Oh, man. 
that's a tough one. My wife might have different, <laughs> different opinions on things. I think, I mean, on the one hand, I would tell myself, like, don't wait until you're 40 years old to go out on your own. I mean, I, I felt like, I mean, I enjoyed working at startups and I enjoyed that process, but I had, even in my early twenties, I had ideas for companies yeah. and I was always worried and gun shy. And I came from, my parents are great parents, but just more conservative. My dad was an accountant. My mom was mm -hmm. a teacher. He struck out and he, like he went out and owned a business for about four years and it did okay. And he sold it and he made a little money, but he wasn't like the, you know, the classic entrepreneur type. And, you know, this notion of like going out and doing something on your own, was just not something that was in my kind of like in my childhood, it was more like, get out of college, get a job, you got to get yeah. a job. <laughs> and so that's, you know, that programming sits in. And, and again, it like, it led to all kinds of a huge opportunities. And, you know, I worked at Pearson. That's how I got my MBA. They actually paid for that MBA for me, you know, it got me to Silicon Valley. I got to work at Blend and work with this phenomenal startup that's now, you know, unicorn status. So it's hard to say like, oh, because if, if I had started earlier, I maybe would have missed some of those opportunities. But on the other hand, one of the things that I do try to teach my son is like, look, man, like you can be, you can be in control of what you want to do. Do the things you want to do. If you want to make art, go make art. If you want to go sell that on the street, you know, and set up a table, then go sell your drawings. If you want to pick apples off the, or the oranges off the tree, which he did this weekend <laughs> and he went outside and sold them for 10 cents each, right? Go do that. You know, it's, it's go do the thing that you want to do because your best self is going to be that personal expression of the things that makes you the happiness. And don't worry so much about the, you know, where am I, how am I going to pay rent? Because, you know, let's face it, we live in a truly remarkable world, especially here in the United States where, you know, there's plenty of cushion around us that most people don't have, but it's easy to kind of get fearful of failure or what are people going to say? So I think the biggest advice I would give myself is, I would, you know, start earlier mm -hmm. in that entrepreneurial journey because it's been one of the most rewarding things I've ever done. That's great. That's really good advice. So thank you so much, Scott, for joining me. But as we wrap, and before I let you go, two things, <laughs> and I always ask this of all my guests, so I know you've listened to the podcast, so you already yeah, know, but one, what yeah. is the one thing about Scott that others would be surprised to learn? And I think we've covered a mm -hmm. lot on your background, so I don't know if you have any more surprises, but two, and two, what is the one thing you want everyone to know about you? Okay. So um, I don't know if this is a surprise, but I thought it would be a fun little fact to share about the one thing that others might be surprised to learn. I don't know about you, but we've had some pandemic purchases, oh. <laughs> things that you may not have, have thought you were going to buy <laughs> pre-pandemic. So our pandemic purchases include a Ford F-150 uh, crew cab pickup. So that's been a super oh, fun wow. vehicle to have to go out on the trail and go camping and do all kinds of cool stuff. Um, we've also added a dog, six chickens and a oh, goat my goodness. to our, our family <laughs> as part of the pandemic. So we've got a truck, a dog, six chickens and a goat. So that's, uh, my wife is responsible for all of the animals and even the truck. You know, she's like, we had this older car. It was not doing so well. And she's like, I'm tired. I'm tired of this one. We got to get, you know, we've been talking about a truck for years. We should go get a truck. Very cool. So those are our pandemic purchases. Very yeah. cool. I need to know about this so, goat before I let you go to the next question. Uh, Why the goat? Yeah. Chickens sure. I get. The dog, of course, I understand. Love yeah. dogs. Is it? Uh, my wife, she just has always loved animals from the time she was very, very young. She, oh, in fact, wanted to be a veterinarian. When she was very young, she used to read encyclopedias about books. So she just always, always loved animals. Um, and so the chickens were pretty easy to maintain. You can, you know, you can have chickens in the backyard and keep them in a, in a chicken run. 
So you can have those here. A friend of ours bought a farm. That was his pandemic purchase. Oh. He decided to buy a <laughs> wow. farm. It's like it's not a huge farm. It's like four acres, but it, you know, it's got some land and it's good friends of ours. And they, you know, the two of them are always in cahoots about what the next thing is going to be for the farm. What needs to happen next on the farm? She spends as much time over there as she does here. I think sometimes she's actually there right now at the farm building a goat oh, pen wow. where we're going to keep the goats. So she and he were just talking about like, oh, we should get goats because goats are a fun thing to have on the farm. And so uh, a mutual friend of theirs actually raises goats in a couple towns over. And so they went and visited some goats and I met them over there in this little baby goat, about 20 Aww. pounds and just adorable. My wife was holding this goat and I thought, all right, I guess we're getting a goat. <laughs> so we're keeping the goat at our friend's farm. So that's, that's how the goat Very came about. Very cute. Yeah. How can you resist? Baby yeah. animals can't resist. Can't resist. There's, I mean, I was, I was like, all right, yeah, this goat's pretty cool. All right. So. What about the one thing that you want everyone to know about you? This is a tough one. I mean, aside from, you know, kind of normal stuff, you know, I got a nine-year-old son that I'm really proud of. I've been married 15 years and really proud of that. We, we talked about the ultra running and the distance, the distance events, I think, but I, th I think it was like the one thing I would want people to know about me is that, you know, as hard as I work at business for what is, you know, generating revenue and growth and helping companies. I do that for a profit. I do these ultra marathons for a cost. Oh. So like as crazy as I am and doing in the sense, like I pay to do these mm -hmm. races and I pay for this coach. So I just tell people like, if you see me doing these ultra marathons and you see how hard I work at doing something that costs me money, imagine how hard <laughs> the team and I would work when you're paying yeah. us money. <laughs> so I just see so many metaphors in doing the ultra running, all the lessons, you know, I'm out there on the trail. I just learned so many things about myself and how to be patient and how to deal with problems and how to deal with pain and in, in a good way. And I just see a lot of metaphors there. And so even in some of my LinkedIn posts and podcasts, I talk about ultra running and I call them lessons from the trail. So I do the ultra running because my wife tells me it's a person. She says, that's how I express oh. myself. <laughs> So I don't know. I don't know if that's a specific answer, but that's the one I came that's up with. That's amazing. Thank you yeah. so much. Well, thank you so much, Scott, for joining me. I'm just super, super grateful and obviously very appreciative of you sharing your story, all of this, lots of thank great you. tips and expertise and experience shared. So I really do appreciate it. I know our listeners are going to be able to learn quite a bit. I'm going to dig into your book. I'm going to pick that up and I will definitely, um, I will definitely provide feedback. <laughs> Well, I, I appreciate the opportunity to be here. It's really an honor. I look at some of the other guests you've had. I'm like, wow, I get to be on that guest <laughs> no, list. This is been... So I've listened to many of the episodes and I've learned a lot myself in every one. So I'm glad to be able to bring some value. And by the way, if people want to grab a copy yeah. of the book, there's a you can download a full and complete version of the piece. If you go to salesqualia, Q-U-A-L-I-A.com slash book, mm -hmm. you don't have to buy a copy. You can just go there and download a full and complete copy in PDF form. So if people want to grab a copy of that, they can do that for That's free. That's amazing. And I know you're on LinkedIn. Are you elsewhere on social? I'm pretty much a LinkedIn yeah, guy. I am too. Yeah. I can't manage too many, too many types of social outlets. Yeah. Too many distractions. Yeah. yeah well, great. You. Thank you so much again, Scott. Thank you.